the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Back in the early 2000s, there was a man by the name of Peter Kuba who ran a website that was called Heaven's Registry. And for a mere $20, the website guaranteed admission into heaven. And on top of that, as if it's a little icing on the cake, for $15, you could guarantee admission for a cherished pet into heaven. And this website gave this warning. God knows which faults will keep us out of heaven. For example, picking a flower in the park, eating a grape at the market without paying for it, breaking the law by speeding or going through a stop sign, using the Lord's name in vain, adultery, and many more. And after it raises all these doubts, about how you could get in heaven, it says, but if you will buy this 100% guaranteed heaven certificate admission, then you'll get into heaven. Now, it's laughable, but it's a promise. Granted, it's an empty promise. 
may be a, an extreme example of an empty promise of what we always face, which that is a myriad of promises that come towards us. Right? In fact, we are, we're a people that everyone here at some point has either been burnt by a broken promise or delivered an empty promise. Right? We've either uh, uh, listened to or, or, or thought a promise acted on it that was too good to be true, or we've been burnt by a promise. And the reality is, is that we, and I say we, I mean religious, not religious, church, not church, trusting Christ, not trusting Christ, every person, wherever you're at, you live your life based on a promise. Whether it's conscious or not, every person lives their lives based on a promise. Could be promise of a political candidate. Could be the promise of a diet. Could be the promise of a superstition. Could be the, the promise of a, of a value. Or could be the promise of science. Or could be the promise of philosophy or a philosopher or some type of philosophy like the American dream, which is own a home and a white picket fence and two and a half kids and have a good job and make decent money and you'll be happy. We all live our lives on some sort of promise. The question is, is the promise that you're living your life on worthy of trust? Is it a trustworthy promise? What is the only promise that is worthy of your trust. And we're going to look at what that promise is, how you wrestle with that promise, and how you're reassured of that promise in the middle of the wrestling. So let's start with what the promise is and how you receive it. Look at verse 1. What is the promise? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then down to verse seven, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. In this passage, in chapter 15, God speaks the promise twice. He speaks the promise, Abraham wrestles with it, God reassures. Promise, wrestle, reassurance, two times. And the two times he speaks his promise, in verse one and verse seven, it's a reiteration of the promise God has already spoken to Abraham in chapter 12, verse one. Listen to the promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. So God promised Abraham two things. Land, I'll give you a land and I'm gonna make you a great nation. And that's gonna start with offspring. You're gonna have a child, that child's gonna grow into a great nation. So land and family. Now, what's the significance of that? What relevance does that have today? You know, some of you are going, well, I own a house on a quarter acre plot of land. So I own a piece of land and I've got a couple children. So I have some offspring. Is that what we're talking about here? Now, this promise comes directly out of Genesis chapter three, which was preached last week. What did Adam and Eve lose in the fall? 
What did they lose as a part of their rebellion, as they're a part of choosing self over God and disobeying God and trying to run by themselves? What did they lose? They lost land and they lost family. They lost the Garden of Eden. They lost this beautiful, perfect creation that was a delight. And they lost family. Immediately after they sin, what happens? Their marriage is fractured. Their firstborn son, Cain, murders their secondborn son, Abel. Their family fractures. They lost land and they lost family. God comes to Abram and says in this promise, I am going to give you back what was lost to sin in the garden. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna give you offspring. Those two, those two are threads that run through the entire Bible. Take land. You have the Garden of Eden, perfect. Lost, paradise lost with sin and rebellion. But then what happens? The nation of Israel begins to grow and they go to the promised land. By the time you get to Revelation, the land is the new heavens and the new earth, a completely brand new creation of what God is doing and the, and the promise he's giving to Abraham, take offspring. How does offspring run through the scriptures? Well, Genesis 3.15, right after sin enters the world, what's God say? He says to the woman, he says to Eve, I'm gonna give you offspring and offspring who's gonna crush the head of the serpent, crush sin, crush death, and then that, that offspring is tracked all the way through the Old Testament. You say, why are, there old, why are there so many genealogies in the Old Testament? Why are there entire chapters where I can't even pronounce the names? Just names and genealogies on and on and on. In fact, we just got out of one, coming out of Noah, right? Noah's descendants, an entire chapter in Genesis 10. What's the purpose of that? Well, they're tracking the offspring from Genesis 3.15 to see when is the one gonna come that's gonna fix this? So you get to the New Testament, you get to the Gospels, and there's what? Genealogies at the beginning of the Gospels, and where do they end? They end with Christ. And you won't find another genealogy in the New Testament. Why? Because the offspring has found its completion in Christ, the one who came to fix everything that was wrong. So again, let me ask the question, why is God's promise to Abram land and offspring or family, nation, great family. Why is that significant today? Why is it relevant today, thousands of years later? Because you need back what was lost in the garden. You need back what was lost in the garden, land and offspring. See, how's that work? What's that mean? Well, think about it. What brings pain and suffering to your life? What brings pain and suffering to your life? It's broken creation, land, and it's, it's broken family, broken community. Take broken creation, of which the human body is the pinnacle of creation, sickness and disease. Then you take our world, natural disasters, storms, Hurricanes here in Florida that cause extensive damage, all flowing out of Genesis 3. And yet God promises a new heavens and a new earth. You need a new heavens and a new earth. Take broken family, broken relationships, 
broken friendships. You know how relationships are so hard in a broken world where there's sin. You need a new family. You need a new community. And that new family is being birthed and multiplied by the one offspring that came, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ that is growing and building, the family that's being built around Christ. And so what the promise, what I want you to see here is the promise God gave to Abram of land and family is the same promise he's fulfilling today in Christ and the same promise that you need. No more creational strain, no more relational strain. And that day's coming. Now, how do you receive this promise? Look at verse six. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord when he could not see what God was promising. He promised him land. And all Abraham saw was all the nations around him, listed at the end of chapter 15, all the nations around him that possessed this land. He couldn't see it. And Abraham and Sarah were childless. Couldn't see the offspring that God was talking about. But it says Abraham believed. See, faith, faith is not something that you express to earn something from God or to merit something. Faith is simply a readiness to receive what God promises. That's what faith is. It's a readiness to receive what God promises and a readiness to receive the means by which God fulfills the promise. See, oftentimes, we, we're ready to receive the promises that we think God should give, or we receive his promises, but we're ready to go get them in our way. And faith says, no, faith is simply a readiness to receive God's promises and the means by which he's gonna fulfill it. How would God fulfill this promise to Abram? Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. The fulfillment of this promise of land, new heavens and new earth, new creation, of offspring, a new family, that one day completely will be free from sin. This promise finds its fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's why when you get to the, the end of the story, in Revelation 21, Jesus says this, and this is after the promise of new heavens and new earth that has no more death, pain, tears, sorrow. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus says, I am renewing creation. I am renewing families. I am renewing communities. I'm renewing lives. I'm doing all this. Now, some of you are sitting there going, hey, that's a great promise. That's great in theory, but I surely don't see it. I see sadness. 
I see sorrow. I don't see this promise you're speaking of. I see just the opposite. And if that's you, welcome to Abram. Welcome to his struggle. Abraham believes, but he doesn't see it and doesn't see how it can happen. Once you receive God's promise in faith, then you begin to wrestle with God's promise. Because in a broken world, it doesn't come clean. Look at verse two. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In Abraham's day, in his culture, a childless man could adopt a man into his family to be his heir. And so what we see here is that Abram believes God's promise enough to try to figure out how it's going to happen. But he says, well, Sarah and I are getting old, beyond childbearing years, so this must be happening through this person I've adopted who's the heir of my estate. I guess that's how God's going to work out this promise, and God's quick to say, no. Abram, you will have your own child. And then verse 5, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. He says, look at the stars. You can't even count. That's how many offspring you're going to have. Abraham doesn't even have a child yet. But Abraham believed. Well, guess what happens 10 years later? 10 years later, still no child. And in Genesis 16, we read Abram and Sarah added again to say, they believe God's promise enough to figure out how it's going to happen now instead of Eleazar, they say, well, Sarah's maidservant. Maybe we can get a child through her servant. And that's what Abram does. And that births Ishmael. It wouldn't be until 25 years later that God gives Abram and Sarah the promised son Isaac. 25 years. I think Abraham's actions can best be described by the father in Mark chapter 9, who has a son who is possessed by an evil spirit, and he says this to Jesus. Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Belief and unbelief, faith and doubt, Faith and questioning, faith and complaint, wrestling with God's promises. The greatest enemies to believing God's promises and acting according to his promises, the greatest enemies are efficiency and impatience. God's promises rarely work themselves out efficiently. And God's promises 
rarely work themselves out immediately. If you worship efficiency, if you worship immediacy, which would be another way of saying immediate gratification, if you worship those two things, you will escape rather than engage. You will escape rather than engage. So if you're struggling with marriage tension and you're worshiping efficiency and immediacy, then you will escape. And that will look like a number of things. You will flee your marriage by literally going to someone else. You will flee your marriage by running to some sort of pleasure. You'll flee your marriage by running to some sort of substance. You will do whatever it takes to escape. If you are struggling with vocational tension in your career, job tension, in your office, if you worship efficiency and you worship immediacy, then you will begin spinning the truth. You'll begin maybe outright lying to get away from the tension, to get what you want. You'll be willing to ruin someone's career to get away from the tension, to get what you want. You, you may even just leave your job. And then 10 years later, look back at six different jobs and you're nowhere near where you wanted to be. In both cases, you may believe God's promise that he is renewing and restoring, renewing your marriage, restoring your work. You may believe God's promise, but you're not willing to wait on him to do it, nor embrace the ordained struggle through which renewal in Christ comes. And that's where we find Abram in his struggle, believing God's promises, and yet running to some other way to get this done whether out of efficiency or immediacy, impatience, believing God's promises, but not being willing to wait on him and not being willing to wait on his way to deliver, which is never efficient and never immediate. It was one hot afternoon and a, a woman walked to her neighbor's produce stand and she waited in line, and it was a long line on a hot afternoon. And finally, she gets to the front of the line, and the produce stand owner takes her order. And she says, I would like some green grapes. And the produce stand owner says, okay, give me a minute, and he walks away, and he disappears behind a building. And she was rubbed by this because she had stood in line and she watched all these other customers in front of her get a nice, warm welcome, somewhat special treatment, but most importantly, immediate service. And so she stands there. The longer she's waiting, she's getting angry and she's getting offended and she's thinking that this owner is just taking her business for granted. And then he comes back a long while later, and he shows up with some red grapes in his hands. And he says to her, hey, we, we have a bunch of green grapes there, but I wanted to go back and, and find you some really good red grapes. And at this point, she's even more angry. 
I asked for green grapes. He says, but would you just taste one? Just taste one. And she tastes the grape, and it's the most delicious, sweetest grape she's ever tasted. And the owner says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the delay, but I just needed some time to get you my best. God is absolutely committed to giving you his best. But oftentimes, it's not what you think is best. In fact, God's commitment to give you his best is in Christ. Any best that you can conceive of outside of Christ or functionally outside of a relationship with Christ is not God's best because it comes from your flesh. It comes from your sinful nature inside and what that desires. But God gives you his best in Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says it this way. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. When Paul writes that, the Corinthian church is upset. And they're upset because Paul didn't come visit them. They're mad. Things didn't play out the way they wanted. Paul delayed. Paul didn't come. And Paul's answer is, I didn't wrong you, nor did God wrong you. Why? Because God's best is promised to you in Christ, in submission to Christ. And that's where we're back at the problem in our wrestling oftentimes. We bow the knee to efficiency. We bow the knee to worship. We bow the knee to our will. And God says, if you will bow the knee to me, to Jesus Christ, you will have my best in Christ. How long have you been waiting in line to get your request from God? How long have you been waiting for him to meet a need, to fix a problem? How long have you been waiting? Don't get out of line. Don't run out of line. Don't run to some other way to get the promise. To do it your way. To get the peace and the happiness that you want your way. Don't get out of line because God promises. You get out of line, you do it your way. There's one result. And it may take time, but there's one result. And that's pain and misery. It's pain and misery. In Christ, there's life. And you say, well, if I'm going to wait in line longer, then I need some sort of assurance. I need some sign that it's worth waiting, that God can be trusted on his promises. Again, welcome to Abram. Look at verse 8. Oh, Lord God, 
how am I to know that I shall possess it? You see what's happened here. God promises. Abraham believes, but then wrestles. And now he says, God, give me some assurance. Give me a sign. And God gives Abram two incredibly powerful signs. And the first sign is his character. God assures Abram with his character. In verses 12 to 16, God tells the story of Abraham's offspring. He says to Abram, you and your offspring are going to journey and be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Then you're going to come out of Egypt 400 years later with great possessions. Then we get to this very strange verse 16. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, which is again referring to the 400 years. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? God said, Abram, you and your offspring are going to go to Egypt for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites, the sin of these nations that are surrounding you right now and the land that I'm promising you, their sin is not yet saturated or full. God says, I'm going to delay judgment for centuries. And that's the pattern we see in the scriptures. God delays judgment. You look at the, uh, the flood. God waits to send the flood until the earth is fully corrupt. He, he delays judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because there's a few faithful there. Even his own people, Israel, when he sends them into exile years later, he waits to send them into exile until their sin is just saturated. It's all a picture of what we hear in the scriptures about God's character, and that is he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yet, in the struggle, in your struggle, you often reverse that, don't you? God is quick to anger and stingy in his love. And yet, the truth of the Scriptures and the story of the Scriptures is the complete opposite, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the first assurance he gives to Abram. Abram, I'm going to give you my, my character that I'm abounding in steadfast love. And the second assurance is the evidence of his character and his steadfast love. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God was making his covenant here with Abram, and now he's, he's giving him a sign to assure Abram of this covenant. And it was a covenant ceremony that was very common in that day. When two people wanted to make a covenant, which today call it signing a contract, it's probably the language we would use today. But when two people wanted to make a covenant, they would sacrifice an animal, they would cut it in half, and both people would walk between the animal pieces, saying, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. 
and the other person saying the same. If I fail to uphold my end of the deal, may this happen to me. Now, what was drastically different in this ceremony is that Abraham didn't walk between the pieces. Only God did in this smoking fire pot. And here's what God was saying, proclaiming loudly as he made this covenant. Abram, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. Abram, if you and your offspring fail to uphold this end of the covenant, which has happened, may this happen to me. And so as Abraham and his offspring, Israel, and now the church, you and me, all who are in Christ, fail the covenant day by day by day. God, and this is where Advent is beautiful, God came in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, went to the cross, and was cut in half on the cross because of your failure and my failure. That's love. That is steadfast love. That's God's character. To take our place. The fulfillment of God's promises did not ultimately depend on Abraham's performance, but rather on God's faithfulness. The promises of God are not yes and amen in you. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and him alone, period. And when you attach yourself by faith to Jesus, you receive the promises because you're in Christ. Now you say, wow, that's a powerful sign. That's a really powerful sign that God gave Abram. I wish he did that today. I wish I could have that kind of sign today in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my wrestling, not seeing these promises fulfilled, the sadness, the sorrow, the broken relationships, the broken creation, all that I'm seeing. I wish, I, I wish we had a sign like that today. And God has given you a sign. He's given you what's called the sacraments, which are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are visible words. Sacraments are things that you can taste and touch and see. The Lord's Supper, which you're gonna experience this morning, is a powerful sign from God that when you take the Lord's Supper by faith, you taste and touch and see Christ. The same way that God gave Abram a powerful sign, he has given us a powerful sign today. So all the promises of God, all the promises, new heavens and new earth, the day of no more creational strain and tension in life. The, the promises of new family and new community. 
in Christ. No more relational strain. All those promises. God attaches a powerful sign to it so that when you take the bread and you're holding the cracker between your fingers, those promises are as real as you being able to touch the bread. And when you hold the cup, the promises of God in Christ are as real as you holding that cup. It's that real. The new heavens and the new earth and transformation and new life. There's a unique flower that's native to the tropical regions of Asia. It's called the corpse flower. Here's why it's called that. It's been compared to three-day roadkill. It's compared to fish gone bad. It's been compared to rotting flesh. Here's why. This flower grows to be upwards of 10 feet tall. And when it, when it blooms, it's a massive bloom of, of a red spiked bloom, but it looks like rotting flesh. And it smells like rotting flesh. I know, it's gross. It looks like death. It smells like death. And therefore, it attracts insects like crazy. Flies and beetles that come to pollinate, they come and land on it, right? Because they, it's, it's offering a meal. It's roadkill. <laughs> Except the problem is, there's no meal. Every other plant gives the reward of nectar. This corpse flower gives nothing. Smells like a meal, looks like a meal, and they get on it, and it's a big practical joke because there's nothing. And so is the story of the empty promises of sin and idolatry. They offer a meal. Smells like a meal. It's attractive. But there's no substance, and there's no reward just death. Are you clinging to corpse flower promises? Or are you clinging to the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ? 